state harms involve harms caused and violence perpetuated by those in power on individuals and groups with less power and little recourse to defend themselves. They manifest in different ways, from the extreme violence of torture, the criminalization of political activists, to surveillance and welfare cuts. Today on the Transforming Society podcast, I'm speaking to Federica Rossi from London South Bank University and Chris McGill from the University of Brighton, who are guest editors of a theme section on state harms in the latest issue of Justice, Power and Resistance. There are five articles in the section which examine the criminalization of activists in Israel, land dispossession and solidarity in Brazil, undercover policing aimed at activists in Britain, the torture of radical left militants in Italy, and welfare state cuts in the UK. Together, the articles reveal patterns in terms of both what state harms are, but also the power of solidarity, denunciation and resistance to challenge them. Welcome, Chris and Federica. Hi. Hello. It's a really, really um, fascinating collection of articles because I think it shows how different state harms can be and like the diff- quite radically different ways in which they manifest. So I, I covered it briefly in the intro, but I wanted to start by asking you to explain a little more fully what we mean when we're talking about state harms. Thank you, Jess, for inviting us to this podcast and for giving us the opportunity to talk more about our themed uh, section, but also to talk more about the state arms. So when we refer to state arms and violence, obviously, we refer to a range of uh, actions, activities, conducts uh, and illegal acts. So uh, illegal according to national and international laws, including for example, human rights uh, legislations. So we think of uh, crimes as legally defined as such. Um, So we think of um, examples of torture, as you have uh, mentioned, and is it the object of one of the articles, but also targeted killings, arbitrary detentions, um, targeted violence against religious or ethnic minority groups, uh, indigenous communities, and so on. I think the important thing here is that the zemiological approach, so the approach that focuses on social harms, allow us to widen up the scope and to include and to analyze forms of violence that are not necessarily illegal uh, from a technical point of view of the law, uh, but that are nevertheless extremely harmful on a wide number of people and very often over a longer time frame. So in terms of uh, state harms um, approach in this way, we can think of uh, omissions, um, failures to regulate or failure to enforce regulation and prosecute, and prosecute, for example, from the um, point of view of the state. And we can think of uh, the example of pollution or the extraction of natural resources, the failure to uh, regulate, for example, the use of uh, can, um, cancerogenic um, pesticide or workplace health and safety, a number of uh, um, regulations or areas where regulations exist but are not enforced or regulations do not exist. And uh, and these um, lack, these omissions or lack of regulations, absolute regulation can amount in some cases as well to facilitate uh, crimes and harms that are enacted by other powerful actors like corporations, for example. 
so, but we also include from the point of view of the state uh, policies, um, decisions that are taken, political decisions that are perfectly legal and even desirable for certain uh, actors in society that have disastrous impacts on people's lives and uh, especially the lives of the socially and economically vulnerable. Thinking about um, specific examples of state harms and, and Federico has provided quite a few examples already, but um, thinking more generally about what they might look like or what they might feel like, um, we need to think about things like uh, cuts to the welfare system. We need to think about things like underfunding the NHS and housing policies. Um, housing policies that have led to unaffordable housing or or very poor housing standards, and, and that's just to mention a few. But I want to I want to mention an example that, that that most people will probably relate to, and that's the Grenfell Tower, which is I believe coming up to the anniversary of the tragedy just this month. And we can look to work from academics such as Professor Steve Toomes, who who analyzes that that tragedy, and um, analyzes the fire and points to. The, the multiple forms of, of social harm that, that led to the fire and actually, you know, still still continuing to, to harm individuals. And again, Federica mentioned corporations and the role of corporations are critical, but neglected in terms of being recognised as, as, as a form of harm. And again, here we can we can look to Professor David White's recent text on um, Ecoside, where he talks about um, the role that corporations have and the impact on on, our, on the you know leading to a sort of global environmental crisis. So it's kind of all encompassing, and it seems baffling um, that where these state harms aren't simply hidden or denied, it seems baffling that the state kind of gets away with it and is able to justify these violations. Mm -hmm. So why do you think they aren't challenged more? There were various points in the articles that came through that felt relevant here. And I think it might be to do with things like othering narratives, mm -hmm. um, this a kind of a myth of existential threats, paradigms of emergency. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk us through some of those things? Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose one point to bear in mind here, and, and it's an important aspect um, of social harm by state and, and corporations is the fact that there are forms of, of what we could refer to as slow violence. So this means that that the effects aren't immediate, that the effects unfold over time, and, and in some cases, indeed, over generations. And um, we just need to think about climate change here as an example. And, and sometimes the victims themselves aren't able to establish or demonstrate the link between the cause and, and the impacts they're experiencing. And, and this contrib contributes to making them less visible and um, in the public eyes. The reasons for which like the state harms are tend to be in, invisible or invisibilized uh, is also because of these effects very often are delayed over time so we can't really feel those effects so they contribute to this invisibilization of state uh, harms and uh, obviously there are a number of violences that, that happened in concealed space in confined space so they are less visible because of where they happen and where they tend to be kept hidden and secret like for example torture just to give mm. one examples but also uh, acts of violence that are delegated in a way by the state to other groups it can be paramilitary groups or it can be criminal groups in in some cases like for example targeted assassinations and so on as we have seen some of the examples um, in the articles that we have in the themed sections 
Um, on the other hand, is also that this invisibility is linked as well, or um, or why it is difficult to call those state arms out and uh, make them visible and denounce them is also because of the framing or the lack of framing as violences and harms and uh, crimes, uh, because very often is, there are forms of violence that tend to escape judgment, in uh, as uh, Ruggiero put it, like uh, they tend to be presented at least as going beyond the good and the bad, beyond moral judgment, and uh, they tend to be presented as tragedies, accidents, um, as a uh, you know, things that happen by themselves without a chain of responsibility and causes before uh, before that. So um, I think it's the framing of those harms uh, that have an impact then on the perception of, of, um, of those harms are important tools to, uh, to use both to deconstruct and make visible these harms and but also for from the point of view of the state to 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 make them appear as not like um, actively enacted forms of violence. Yeah. Um, say. And in the media have certainly uh, play certainly a, an important role in this sense in terms of framing or justifying or legitimizing forms of violence, and um, and also the. What we call the social construction of a threat, as you mentioned, for example, yeah. the process of othering, presenting other labeling, you know, certain groups as dangerous, as a threat to security, as a threat to society, as a threat to the social order more generally, then may lead to the justification or legitimation of tools of, a, of, a, of an extreme violence that are targeting those groups. Um, so it, it if we just think of the example of Guantanamo Bay and how it has revived the discussion on torture in a way that it was, uh, it led to, a, to, to an extent to a, a, a wider tolerance to, uh, um, to torture in a way that we would not expect uh, in the years 2000, but the uh, concepts that are very, very much flawed concepts like the ticking bomb scenario or, um, or the lesser, lesser evil uh, kind of concepts are then have been used to justify the use of torture from a very utilitarian perspective, um, if you wish, on uh, because of the previous construction of a threat yeah. uh, as the terrorist threat, or it can be yeah, uh, uh, the enemy from within, the domestic extremist, and so on and so forth, which participates this. Yeah, construction of a threat that then allows um, harsher criminalization or the enactment of violence uh, towards certain groups in society. I suppose I was going to pick up on, on the point around the media and, and the very powerful role that the media plays in, in terms of, of framing um, acts, criminal acts, um, social harm, state harm, etc. And with the exception of a few cases, I suppose, um, but it, they're just not framed as violence. They're just not framed as as crime, and and then therefore the media, the the state isn't isn't perceived as as responsible. It almost becomes framed as a necessity, doesn't it? Which is just deeply uncomfortable. I think when you step back from it and think about it, 
Hmm. I was interested in the notion um, that one of the articles raised on the distinction between formal and informal strategies for enacting state harms. Mm. I think we may have covered this a little bit in the discussion of the media, um, mm. but what role do non-state actors play? Well, I guess the, this, this distinction is very interesting and important and not very much explored. Maybe the media part is uh, more, mm. more something that we are more um, used to and familiar okay. with. Mm. Uh, but when we thought, obviously, when we think of the formal strategies for enacting state arms, those over criminalization, uh, we refer to the laws and policies and regulations that directly or indirectly facilitate or trans translate into state violence and harms. Um, but when we focus too much on state actors and um, and state agencies and agents, then we tend to forget a number of group and actors that play an important role and that may have a significant influence as well on decision makers and on decision making process, um, including in the direction of enacting or facilitating harms. Um, and the some of the actors I mentioned earlier are corporations, some of the powerful actors in this in this sense, because corporations, especially multinational corporations, have uh, a huge power and they have a, a very significant power in terms of um, influencing policy making at the, um, the level of uh, uh, both national and international level. I'd say if you think of uh, of uh, multinational corporations and they are directly and routinely involved in uh, in a series of illegal acts and conducts, but also more legal conducts that are extremely harmful. Um, and that are both socially and environmentally harmful. Um, mm. Then less known, I guess, uh, also because academic literature has paid less attention to it, is the role of think tanks and uh, civil society groups. Um, there are a number of think tanks and pressure groups that have direct links, often with reactionary politics, not only, but um, uh, we have seen, for example, um, more recently, um, I was listening to a podcast on the BBC as well, I think Radio 4, on uh, 55 Tufton Street and a number of think tanks and groups that are there and their ability to influence political decision making and lobbying for the, the adoption of policies that are socially, economically and environmentally damaging. They're massively influential, aren't they? Yeah, and easily easily overlooked um, think tanks. Um, I think um, partly maybe because academic literature, as Federica said, hasn't paid particular attention to them. But yet, yet their influence is is there, and and they're powerful bodies. Um, and a very good example of of a non-state actor. Another example I thought about was um, civil society groups. Um, they're able to to build pressure. They're able to influence, you know, local authorities, um, and encourage the sort of, you know, facilitating policies. Such as I think a, a very recent and um, important example is the curtailment of reproductive rights and abortion law that we've seen in America. So we need to think about um, think tanks. We need to think about civil society groups as well, and 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 their role as as non-state state actors in facilitating um, state harm. 
That's so important because even in reading the articles, you read this kind of stuff and you are thinking government, media, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, I, they didn't pop into my head at all. Mm. In the heading of the theme section, um, you, I think it's the sub, and you split out solidarity, denunciation and resistance. So I wanted to ask you to talk through a little bit um, what's particular about each of each of these as challenges to state harm. Well, we well we 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 chose those sort of three terms, if you like, because when Federica and I read the different articles, it was very apparent to us that those were common themes through that threaded the way through all all of the articles in in the edition. I suppose what we thought also um, about the the sort of relationship between the three in that they're not sort of, they're the concepts, they're interlinked and they're dependent on each other. So, for example, solidarity supports denunciation and denunciation in turn attempts to make visible and make audible those state practices and to define them for what they are, that is, you know, violence. And we call it for what it is. And and, and similarly, uh, Roxana and colleagues, um, her article looks at the harm um, to Indigenous people in, in Brazil. And, and again, we see this aspects of solidarity and denunciation and resistance. I think, Federica, you have a little bit more to say on this than me, possibly. So, Yeah, uh, there was thinking like how important is the, uh, the act of naming, which is uh, part of the making those arms visible and uh, and uh, and and how important as well as a necessary stage for building a cause around um, mm -hmm. around the specific uh, case of state harm, but also around the multiplicity of those state harms. So, uh, just now while while speaking, we also I I'm also thinking about the um, 1980s article by Felsiner, Abel and Sarat on the emergence and transformation of dispute and how naming is one of the necessary stages that allow them that allow them to build a cause to express the grievance and to mobilize then um, including mobilizing solidarity uh, and to resist uh, state harms so we can resist together in solidarity challenging an injury that has been done to a group, to an individual, as it is an injury to all of us. And um, and so coming together based on this denunciation as well and making, and together we can make then that state harm visible and call it, as uh, Chris said, for what it is. And from then you can go forward. Yes, absolutely. So I want to come back to that in a minute, the idea of resistance. Um, but I just had a slightly different question. When I was reading the article, I was thinking about academia and the role of academia in challenging state harms. Um, so I wanted to ask you, should academic research be political? And then what does politically committed academic research look like? This is a really, really great question, and and it's not one that's easily answered. No, um, I know. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question, and I think academics occupy different places and take, take different perspectives in this area. Um, speaking from sort of my own personal uh, perspective, um, as an academic, I, I see myself as occupying a, a position of privilege, and um, with that, I think comes responsibility. Um, 
a driving force behind all my research and my commitment to doing research in, in the different areas I research in has always been, since from being a very young researcher, has been to make a difference. And, you know, I know that sounds cliched, and it is cliched, but actually, you know, that is it. It is what it is. It's it, The research I do is about making a difference, but then I suppose the question then becomes, you know, making a difference to whom? Um, and I guess my response to that would be making a difference to society, making a difference to communities, individuals, you know, the most vulnerable, the most marginalised, the least powerful. And how we do that, again, there's no easy answer. I think there are various approaches. At one end of the continuum, I guess, it's about, you know, simply making your research accessible. Um, and then at the other end of the continuum, I suppose, is a, it's something more than that. It, it's something more personal. It's about um, taking an approach to your work that opens up space for unheard voices, that amplifies um, those who are not heard or, or or don't have the power to occupy those spaces, you know, facilitating that, facilitating the, the, space, the space and the opportunity to contribute to research uh, or speak to the issues that academics research touch upon. Federica? Yes, um, I agree very much with Chris. It's a... Uh, it's difficult to answer this question and easy in a way, easy from a personal point of view, but not di but difficult because it, it is an object of debate among <laughs> academics, I guess, especially yeah. academics that are um, that are willing to contribute to make a change in society. So I, I think for me, it's the um, the sense of allyship and solidarity is at the heart of what uh, what I try to do and. Um, which involves as well a, a sense of care, a care for those that we tr we try with our academic work to support the, the voices that we want to amplify, which is also uh, the care that we need to take in when we do work on specific issues, not to appropriate voices, but on con and experiences for our own academic benefits and careers, but on contrary to to be the ally in solidarity, which is to amplify voices, to speak on behalf of when people cannot speak on their behalf, also because in some cases can be dangerous to speak out. So to, to offer tools and support in this sense, to, 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 to try to make those voices heard uh, or audible when they, they have little chances to, do, to, to be able to be heard. Um, and so to use, in a way, the relative privilege that we have in academia to uh, to support struggles um, in solidarity from within, together, rather than from above. <laughs> from uh, uh, so in in I would say in comradeship and with love and care, um, and also which means also to recognize when we need to step back and let others speak and not occupy the center of the stage. Um, and I think it's also in a way with um, academic research and academia in general and taking positions um, and following recent conversations with some colleagues during an event is also about debunking this myth of uh, neutrality. Um, I mean, at least for me, like we cannot be neutral uh, for we can 
we we can be objective. We we should aim to be objective, but doesn't necessarily mean to be neutral. And uh, taking positions is a question of uh, I mean we can't not take a position. And uh, I would say also um, so I'm skeptical of skeptical of academic research that claims to be neutral because I think as Desmond Tutu put it beautifully. If uh, we are neutral in the situation of injustice, it means that we are choosing the side of the oppressor. And I don't think academic research or academic research as I, and as I uh, interpret it can be neutral. Thank you. I have one more question to finish. Um, this is wanting to kind of bring your work here into the context of transforming society and thinking about that making a difference. So what does this collection of articles tell us about how new solidarities could emerge, do you think? I mean, really, what opportunities and openings for change do you think exist? Another big question. Um, yeah. Perhaps I could kick off on this one. Um, it's difficult um, and in some cases dangerous, as we've seen in, in, in the articles in, in the themed um, section, um, to um form these new solidarities and it can be all consuming and challenging state harms and violence i think the one tool we do have here is solidarity really we need to occupy those spaces with activism as and when those those spaces become open and available to us i think it all the articles show that i think activism building uh causes mobilizing it can be difficult, as Chris said, dangerous. It's certainly consuming, uh, but nevertheless, so they show as well the power that we have in building solidarities, in building mobilization. This is the tool and the power that we have to really make a change. So uh, I hope that not only these articles in this themed section um, showed the the uh, the difficulties and dangers and the uh, the um, of um, state and the consequences of uh, state harms, but also the power that we can have if we come together to challenge those state harms, and it can really and it goes beyond uh, denunciation, but it can go as far as making a real change. Yes, I really like what you've said about naming and solidarity, and then that then creates these spaces. Um, doesn't it? And then what you just said there, Chris, about just making sure there's activism in those spaces. That feels like how we might keep things moving in a better direction. Thank you, Chris and Federica. That's fascinating, genuinely fascinating. And it's a great collection of articles and I learned a lot from reading them. Thank you very much, Jess. Pleasure. Um, so this theme section on state harms, which is guest edited by Federica Rossi and Chris McGill, is in the Justice, Power and Resistance Journal, um, which is available to read on Bristol University Press Digital. Um, we'll put links below. Um, if you don't already have access, please ask your library to subscribe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.